welcome to the Questionably Qualified podcast covering Game of Thrones. Episode 2 of Season 7 aired recently, Stormborn, and so I'm here to talk about it with my partner Ryan Maddock. Maddock, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good today. How you doing, John? Good. I'm still a little upset about some things that happened in the last episode, which I will probably rant about at length, uh, but we can we can cover a lot of the other stuff before we get to that. Homing beacons is the answer to your question. <laughs> yes, um, there, there, are, there are many explanations, just none that <laughs> you know seem to exist in this world. Let's begin. Yes. All right, so let's start in Dragonstone. So Danny is meeting with, you know, her assembled small council, and she has a conversation with Varys, and she sort of puts the screws to Varys, despite Tyrion's protestations. And I think I think she was sort of right to do that. I, I don't know that she was genuinely questioning his position as much as sort of making it clear that she is not going to be tolerating some of the behind-the-scenes activity he's engaged in in the past. I think that that's what it was about. Uh, when I kind of first thought about it, I was like, this is a weird time for her to do this and not to do it Marine. But uh, to be honest, I actually, it, it does actually seem like the right time to do it once Varys has helped arrange the partnership with the Tyrells and the partnership with Dorne. So, uh, but I, I don't think that there was any risk of Varys being hurt unless he like really screwed up that questioning, um, which he didn't. He did a very good job. I think it was Danny just kind of putting a flag in the ground. Yeah, I agree. And and it does seem to me like her proposal at the end, which is, you know, if you have those concerns about me, bring them to my face, is one that should work for both sides, presuming Danny doesn't get, undergo sort of the decline that her father did. Yeah, you, I mean, obviously with a proposal like that, you'd have to see what ultimately Danny's reaction was uh, when he brought it there and what he would do if Danny disagreed. Like, Varys is not going to be okay if Danny goes across uh, to King's Landing with dragons. And... It'll if that's what happens, we'll see if they play that out. Yeah, especially given that apparently at the time they thought the only thing in King's Landing was common folk, not say a fleet of ships. <laughs> well, they. I mean, it's a big bay. It's a very big bay, and Dragonstone is. I don't know. Okay, so Melisandre <laughs> arrived shortly after. She teleported from. She was at. She was at Castle Black, right? Uh, she was in Winterfell. Oh yeah, yeah, Winterfell. Sorry, Winterfell. Davos brought up the burnt, the burnt statue he had given Shireen, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I did do that." Winterfell's really not close to King's Landing at all. It is not, uh, and it is something that I I will probably complain about later in this in this episode. But in general, we we've, we've mentioned before some concerns with the speed of travel for some of the show's characters. And it's not so much that they're cutting through a lot of monotony that I mind, because I'm perfectly all right with that. I am on record as saying that the books could use a bit of trimming in that in that sense. But it does sort of suggest that for the people who do teleport, as we describe it, they're just having a very uneventful, peaceful journey to wherever they're going. Yeah, which doesn't seem likely. I mean, one can assume that Melisandre went to White Harbor and caught passage from there, but that's still like weeks of a journey. Right, and we've seen you know Arya come across a group of Lannister men who ended up being friendly, but that's not always the case. We saw her come across in this episode her direwolf Nymeria. My only assumption is that Melisandre just sort of waltzed across the north to White Harbor and jumped on a ship without ever being stopped. And we do know that there is a uh, newly made fleet of a thousand ships that's just sort of roaming around the seas undetectable. Yep. Didn't, didn't bother with that ship, luckily. So Melisandre arrives, and basically she's the source of knowledge then for Danny and her group to find out about Jon Snow reigning as the king in the north. 
The change in power, I suppose, has taken place since they left for Marine. It is a pretty big development. Danny wastes no time suggesting that they need to bring him to Dragonstone in order to bend the knee. Now, my my initial impression was I feel like John is going to ignore that and be like, guys, I've got way bigger concerns, and they involve staying in the north because we have an army of zombies approaching. But obviously that's not the case. So what what did you think when that first happened? Do you think that Danny was being... I mean, Danny was being Danny, obviously. She wants to be the queen of the Seven Kingdoms, not just the ruler in King's Landing. Is she stepping a little far out on this one, or is that pretty much just the only approach she does have? I think that she wants to be the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms, and I think that she expects John to bend the knee. I expect the exchange to be like, hey, how about we shut up about who's ruling the Seven Kingdoms because death is coming. And, you know, at the end, I don't expect John to bend the knee, but I expect to give him, I expect him to give some sort of rousing monologue about how if she wants to rule the North, she needs to show the North that she's willing to defend it or something like that. And then she'll be like, okay. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay, so the, the next scene we, we see in Dragonstone, they are now planning for, for battle, essentially. They're discussing what their, their next plans are going to be, and Tyrion... Basically, Tyrion perfectly anticipates what Cersei plans to do, which is use the fact that Danny's army is largely made up of foreigners and people strange to the people of Westeros uh, against them and rally rally support that way. I, I don't think that would be enough, given that she just detonated the Sept of Baelor and killed the, the sitting king and queen. Can we discuss how that appears to be a consequence-less action? Yes, I'm, I'm kind of surprised by that. So far, we've had a an awkward line of questioning from Jamie, and that is the extent of the fallout that she's she experienced. She murdered hundreds, if not thousands of people when she blew up, and she blew up the the central point of the major religion of her of her realm. Yeah, she essentially was a Roman emperor who, who blew up the Pope. And the Sistine Chapel. Like, you can't <laughs> do that. She would essentially be the Roman emperor's mother who blew up the Pope as well as her son and his wife. Yep. That wouldn't go over well with Catholics. I don't think or Romans, but it, no one cares. She's completely off the hook. I thought that there would be retribution there, but we have, I don't know. We've moved far away from that, I guess. Yeah. It certainly seems that we have, and we'll discuss that a little more when we get to King's landing and talk about uh, the state of Randall Tarley in particular is sort of the focal point of Cersei's attempt at re- regaining an army. The the plan that Danny and her followers agree on, uh, with Tyrion's help, like I said, he knows exactly what Cersei is thinking, is to send the Unsullied, as the, the aforementioned you know foreign influence, around the continent to attack Casterly Rock, the seat of House Lannister, and then use the Tyrell and Dornish armies to lay siege to King's Landing. It would theoretically neutralize the approach that Cersei is attempting to take here. I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's well crafted. No one likes the Lannisters, so no one cares if Dothraki attack Casterly Rock because, like, who gives a shit? The Lannisters are terrible. And to use the Tyrells and Dorne, which, if you're going to name houses that the least people would have overt grievances against, I mean, the Tyrells are loved in King's Landing and the Tyrells are generally respected, and Dorne hasn't had much of a say in anything other than Oberyn getting his head bashed in after the mountain confessed to raping Oberyn's sister. Once again, we're assuming that news travels in Westeros, which we'll discuss later. But, like, it's a logical play. It it makes sense. It's just, unfortunately, nobody knew that there were 
a thousand ships just kind of in the ocean. Sneak attack fleet. I, I agree. I think it's a very good plan. Do you think that they're not not incorporating hindsight? Do you think that they should have taken some degree of action against King's Landing immediately? Yeah, they should have fucking blockaded it. Like a normal human be- like they sh- like are you- they should have fucking blockaded it. Right, you you would cut off all supply <laughs> access, right? Yeah. Like at least you at least cut it off from the sea if you're a Dragonstone. Like okay, so people the geography lesson. Um if you don't know why John and I are so just in Dignant right now. Yes. Um, King's Landing is at the backmost part of a bay. At the head of that, at the mouth of that bay, is an island. That island is known as Dragonstone. The reason that Dragonstone has strategic value is because it controls the waterways in and out of King's Landing. You cannot get in and out or in or out of King's Landing without passing by Dragonstone. So if you were on Dragonstone, the first thing you would do is blockade King's Landing. The second thing you would do is you'd roam around with your dragons and destroy um and destroy any like transports that were coming in. Like you could you couldn't put a perfect blockade in place, but you could really disrupt the flow of goods in and out of King's Landing if you were being intelligent. Right. And and given the state of King's Landing the last time we saw it, a blockade like that plus some action on the west side of the continent would essentially you could just wait Cersei Wait, you just wait for Cersei to starve. Every, starve. Yeah, that would be it. Unless, I mean, the argument would be that Danny doesn't want to starve the citizens of King's Landing. Right. Because when you blockade. But that's why you just blockade the... Like, I, I don't know exactly what you would do, but blockade the ocean is the minimum one. She does not do that. Yeah. And furthermore, it seems that there is no sort of reconnaissance done whatsoever. They just kind of hang out and let ships drive by. It's instead their strategy. Right. Including ones flying the Greyjoy banners. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's actually just go. Let's go straight there. Yeah, just do it. Just do the end of the episode. Just let's rip the bandaid off. So last last episode in in the premiere, we saw Euron talk to Cersei in King's Landing, sail his entire fleet to King's Landing, present himself as a marriage option, and when turned down, present himself as an ally and demonstrate further value by bringing a priceless gift. Now, we speculated on that last week. I think that at some point I might have mentioned Ilaria as a possibility I'd heard from someone else. It certainly wasn't my prediction, probably because I try not to think about the Sand Snakes at any time. Yeah, I thought they were done. Yep. And since then, all we've seen is Danny arrive in Dragonstone. Now, the the timeline, no one knows, right? They don't timestamp the scenes in this show. You assume it's generally in order, though, right? I do, absolutely. And... Let, but we can break it down hypothetically. So, hi, hypothetically speaking, if Euron did in fact sail into King's Landing shortly before Danny arrived in Dragonstone, okay, and they didn't notice the thousand fl- and 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 the and Danny doesn't notice a thousand ships in the bay, correct? <laughs> then the scene at the end of this episode would suggest that Euron was able to assemble his fleet in the bay, still without being noticed by the dragons. And launch an attack on the ships carrying his niece, nephew, and the Sand Snakes. Yes. This seems very hard to believe. It is complicated further by the fact that with flying fireballs, the mother of dragons might notice something and get on one of her dragons to set fire to that fleet. Um, Yes. So it's it's hard to see that working out. Also worth questioning is... um... You know, in a naval battle, normally when you're attacked, you fire back. I don't believe <laughs> they shot a single uh, projectile. As I, I think, as I said before, 
the uh, show, it's, you know, they just forgot to equip their weapons, which we've all done in video games before. They they don't do anything. They left all the cannonballs on the other ship. No, but, like, seriously, like, <laughs> you're on finding their boat amongst the great sea of them, and just that being the first opening of the surprise attack, which, you know, really stretches uh, logic. Right. You can accept as, like, a television moment. Like, yeah. you're fine with it. Yeah. But the idea that, like, an entire thousand uh, boat fleet sneaks up un- unnoticed, opens fire, and no one returns fire? Like, are we wrong? Like, they like they had the entire fleet from the Iron Islands before Euron Correct. ordered them to build another thousand boats, which, uh, like, apparently, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, and it seems like, I mean, maybe we're wrong, and maybe for some reason Theon and Yara sailed off with a group of five ships. Yeah. Like, they didn't take the whole initial fleet, but that wouldn't make sense because they're they're going to be, like, troop transports. Like, no. They're they're going down to take the Tyrell and Dornish army, which are, like, famously not that affected by the wars. Like, those are big armies. They have a lot of freaking boats. Right. And and it seems like what we saw is Euron destroying the Greyjoy component of Danny's fleet with maybe four or five casualties of his own. And I mean well, yeah, people, not ships. Back. I mean people. Yeah, they didn't fire <laughs> because they didn't fire back. Their their strategy was allow Euron to board and then attack. Right. Um, and and it should be noted as well, I think, that Yara has on multiple occasions voiced concern over her uncle and is presumably very aware of the threat that he poses. Yeah, and probably like one would assume that they would, someone would have gotten word. That the Iron Islands were, like, ravaging all of their trees to build a thousand ships? Like, no one noticed? Right. And no one noticed the, the fleet sailing around the continent, into King's Landing, any of these things. Like, a thousand ships is so many ships. <laughs> it's a lot of ships. And maybe it's he's speaking so in hyperbole, but we saw that, that shot of all those ships coming in. It's a big fleet. Yeah, it's so many ships. And you would assume... <laughs> That someone would have noticed. And Varys, who has spies literally every... Okay. Have we ranted? I think we've I think we've reached the end of ranting about that. I think so. I think so, yes. Because there is there is a, a, a clear gap in the intelligence that Danny has gathered. Um, but let's go with hypothetical number two. Okay. Which is that the scene with Euron happened considerably earlier than Danny arriving in Dragonstone... And in the time between, he was able to remove his fleet from the bay and wait somewhere for an opportunity to attack a stray piece of the Greyjoy fleet. So he just he just attacked like five like the, it, it's just he just attacked a small part of a big fleet. Yeah, that, that makes one no still sense. has problems because again the the Greyjoy fleet, the Tyrell fleet. And the Targaryen fleet, the, those all three components of Danny's navy, is heading the exact same direction. That boat had literally everyone on it that mattered. Also, Dorna owned ships, so the Dornish and the Sand Snakes would have been on their own ships. But like, whatever. Right, and we know that at least some of the ships are fine because in the next next week on the Unsullied are successfully in Casterly Rock. So that um let's assume that's the master ships that Danny confiscated. Yes. I think that's a safe assumption, right? Yes, I agree. So for some reason they're just staggering their their ships as they leave Dragonstone, I guess. 
somehow the idea that Yara, Theon, the Sand Snakes, and Ilaria are on a ship that's farther away, that's like separated from the main force of Greyjoy ships is honestly harder to believe than what we just ranted about. Yeah. That's a, that would be beyond absurd. So, so with these, with these sort of logical complaints out of the way, I would like to touch on something we, we discussed last week. This sort of, are, are we sure, are we sure it's good? Last week we talked about, are we sure the iron fleet is actually good? Oh yeah. The track record we had seen suggests that they lost in most actual naval battles. And I, I want to turn the, the attention, you know, we're going to go down a level here and focus just on Euron because I get the impression that we were supposed to be thinking that Euron is a total badass from this scene. I think he that's seems... what the show rudders want us to think. Yeah, and he he's pretty good at swinging an axe. Like, I'm not going to take that away from him. And Euron does seem generally badass. Is he a great naval commander? I don't know. It, like, doesn't change the question that we asked last week, which is, in, is the Iron Fleet any good? And then it's like, I don't know. But then the Iron Fleet won an inner squad scrimmage. <laughs> right. Like, the offense won an inner squad scrimmage, <laughs> and all of a sudden they're like, we're incredible. And you're like, no. And Euron, in this, in this scene, manages to defeat two of the Sand Snakes, who we've, you know seen before not very impressive one of who is using a whip against fucking axes <laughs> repeatedly like she uses whip. it once she pulls on him and he uses the momentum to punch her in the face after which she gets up and hits him with it again at which mm-hmm. point he uses the whip to pull her towards him and punch her in the face <laughs> like if you're training your daughter's to be like secret assassins, you're teaching them how to throw a dagger, right? I, I would think or so. Or an axe. We saw one of them successfully That's throw not a even dagger. Sexist. Fuck it. If I'm teaching my sons to be like, if you're teaching someone to be kind of like the covert agile dude, like in all games, in like D and D, rogues throw daggers. Yep. Like Euron's wearing cloth armor and not a helmet. Why doesn't someone just throw a fucking dagger through his eye? Yeah. Well, I mean, the easy explanation is that the one sand snake who does throw daggers at people threw a dagger at someone, successfully killed them, and it was immediately ushered downstairs. Why doesn't someone else throw daggers at him? Because <laughs> the, they've got a whip. He entered the ship and just like screamed. Like she could have, <laughs> she could have got punched in the face the first time, stood up and throw a dagger through his skull, yep. and this fight's over. Yep. Or just nicked him really, because I would assume that they all use poison. I know that that the you know sort of Oberyn family has a reputation for that, so it's possible, I suppose, that Euron is poisoned right now. Because he was stabbed by the spear, I believe, briefly. But I, for some reason, I don't think we're going to be that lucky. No, I think Huron's around for a little bit. Yep. And yeah, I mean, just just a general idea. Uh, if someone's got armor, don't use a whip on them. Yeah, and if they're wearing cloth armor and no helmet, throw a dagger through their skull. Yeah, try try stabby things. Stabby things in that, in that situation. Yeah, no whip. You know what? Honestly, if someone's wearing any clothes at all, don't wear a whip. Don't use a whip. If someone's wearing a sweatshirt, <laughs> you should probably not use a whip. Yeah, it's time it's, to it's time to switch it up. It's really going to blunt blunt the effect of your weapon there. Um, so yeah, not impressed with him taking down those two those two sand snakes. I mean, we we've, we've seen the sand snakes lose a battle against one handed Jamie and Bron when it was three of them. We've seen them successfully kill Tristane by standing on either side of him and stabbing him in the back of the head. That was impressive strategy on their part. Right, yeah, tr- truly, truly clever there. 
Um, at least they both engaged their opponent at the same time in that, in that situation, which they failed to do in this one. Other than that, I'm not sure. Have we seen them, have we seen them actually successfully attack anyone? No. Uh, Arya Hota. Oh, yes. Yes, that's true. The assassination of the, of the worst bodyguard of all time. Who is one of the best fighters of all time. Right. Supposedly. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm not going to give Yura much credit for that. He did, he did beat Yara pretty quickly, um, which I guess was, it was sort of disappointing to me, just because I was hoping that maybe Yara would, would be able to, uh, to take him down. Yeah, I, I was really hopeful on that, to be honest. I thought there was a chance. Yeah, I, I was did, pretty positive that Theon wasn't going to step up, which, you no. know, I'm, I'm willing to give him a pass on that. I, I, I don't, it doesn't really help his case in my book because he's still one of my most hated characters. But... I was, I thought he was going to at least charge in and have a noble death. Does, do we see Theon again? Is he dead or he's not going to die, right? Like Theon can't die because no. he never dies. Yeah, he's not going to die. He's going to float around somewhere. <laughs> and just be like emasculated somewhere else. Yes. So it does bring up one interesting thing. We're going to give, uh, I'm going to give Yara a little credit for defeating Yara. Like I said, I'm not sure we've seen much evidence of Yara being impressive either. We've heard stories, uh, but you know, the last time I remember her <laughs> yeah. was being turned away by a shirtless Ramsey Bolton. On the topic of people not throwing sharp objects at yep. other people's exposed skin. Yep. Funny um, you mentioned that. Oh, oh that scene. <laughs> that scene still hurts when I think about it. Yes. For those who don't remember, I believe that was season three. I think it was four. It was three or four. Yep. And Yara tries to rescue Theon, uh, who's re- very much Reek at the time. And Reek, you know, doesn't come with her right away. At which point, Ramsay storms in with no shirt on. And Yara is holding axes she is very able to throw at people and chooses to retreat rather than throw an axe at his heart right so the one question i do have coming out of that is we think that yara is still alive yeah she's gonna be part of the gift i think okay so you think she's gonna be part of the i was trying to figure out what value she would have to euron because really she's only a threat to euron yeah if she's not part of the gift euron would definitely kill her okay that makes some sense then Maybe they, the show could go in the third direction that doesn't make any sense because you're on fleet and all of that. Okay, so, yep, hopefully Yara's still alive. I do like her as a character. Again, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not I'm not putting Euron super high up on my formidable fighters list at the, at the moment. Yeah, no, he hasn't, he hasn't shown anything that he's, he hasn't shown that he's great at fighting in any way. Euron is presumably bound for King's Landing now with the gifts that he promised Cersei, which is going to be Alaria, one of her daughters, the living daughter, and potentially Yara as well. Cersei is trying to build up her forces on the land in the meantime, because at the moment, I think she would only have the Lannister army and any armies that are still loyal to her after detonating the Sept of Baelor, which potentially could be all of them. Yeah, and I mean, the ones loyal to her would be liege lords of the Lannisters that haven't affected and like the few king like the few lords around King's Landing like not a substantial amount and both those armies have been involved in the war from the very beginning so they're like even though the Lannisters haven't suffered any major defeats those armies aren't or no they have to rob early like those armies aren't doing well yeah they should be pretty chewed up at this point so she she pitches them on exactly what Tyrion warned she would pitch them on which is the idea of you know xenophobia foreign army coming in Everyone should mount up and defend against that. Make Westeros great again. <laughs> that is precisely correct. You know, so potentially a pitch that I would underestimate. Yeah. <laughs> it might work really well. Yeah. 
And among the lords that she's addressing at this point is Lord Randall Tarley, Sam's dad, the guy we last saw spewing some xenophobia of his own against Gilly when they were at dinner. So you got to think he's at least somewhat amenable to this pitch. Yeah, and he's notably one of the greatest battle commanders in um, all of Westeros. Right. If not the greatest, because in the show, Stannis is terrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Jamie Jamie cites that when, when Jamie sort of takes him aside afterwards. Yeah. Probably, in my mind, thinking, you know, I should probably help Cersei out here because all these people know what she did, and they might need a little more than just a pep talk to uh, stay loyal. And yes. so Jamie takes Lord Tarly aside, and he mentions the fact that he was the only person to win a battle against Robert Baratheon during Robert's Rebellion. Um, this is true. It wasn't a massive battle, but it was... Again, the only time that Robert lost, so it's a pretty noteworthy event. And I, I think that Tarly's reception, at the, at the beginning at least, is, is fairly cold. He doesn't seem like he's diehard loyal to the throne at that point. But Jamie sort of makes the offer of, you know, if, if we're on the winning side of this, you can usurp House Tyrell as the Wardens of the South. Yeah, I mean, it looked to be an effective pitch to the Tarleys. And I think I think it would be effective for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's it's a massive step up in in power, no doubt about that. Uh, you know, Hornhill is an old, the house. Tarly is an old house. Hornhill is an old castle, well respected, but not rich or powerful. And this would give them a chance to take over basically the rich, you know the second richest, only to the Lannisters, and currently the richest since the Lannisters are in debt reg- region in Westeros. Yeah, and but. I just don't know how much they move. Like, Randall Tarley's good and all, and he's a great commander, but I don't know how many men they bring on the battlefield. You know, like, I don't I don't see how they move the needle in any discernible way. Build me a thousand spearmen. <laughs> that fu- that The functional equivalent of generate me an army. Yeah. Hey, like we, we've got it. a bunch of 21-year-olds fit for battle. It- <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think that Lord Tarley is at least somewhat interest- interested by this, and I think that the significance of Euron's victory at sea might be enough to sort of at least keep these lords from going over right away to the the other side also in king's landing maester kyburn or not not maester kyburn apologies uh, not not actually a maester yeah fake news trucks yeah fake news <laughs> uh suggests to cersei that you know he's got a solution for the little dragon problem they're facing and takes her down to the dragon pit the you know where where all the bones of the Targaryen dragons are are resting, and shows her his latest development, a ballista. Yeah, not that not that surprising of a development. You know, it looks effective, but dragon bone is notoriously strong. But dragon scale is also notoriously notoriously strong, and the dragon bone that he shot it at was um like four hundred years old. So <laughs> right, so so impressive. You know, sort of a visual, I guess. In the stories, Balerion's skin was so... His scales were so hard that you couldn't penetrate his scales, and that was the problem. Yeah, and that's why you, just, you have to stab dragons in, like, the eye. Right. And and for the for their current cause, it might not be as much of an issue just because Danny's dragons are a lot younger, their scales won't be as hardened. But either way, I feel like this demonstration was sort of invalid. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't very good. Yeah. But, you know... We'll have to wait and see if Danny flies Drogon into the Red Keep, lands right in front of a ballista that Cersei's at, and looks at it. She might be able to take him down. Would you be that surprised at this point? Nope, I would not anymore. 
I wish I was. Okay, so they've got their dragon killer. It's a ballista. Uh, we do know, in fairness, we do know of things like a ballista being able to take down a dragon. The difficulty is that's obviously going to be a difficult shot unless the dragon is immobilized somehow. Yeah. And you'd have to get a little lucky. Yeah. And from what we know in the books, you'd, you'd have to hit it in like basically the eye or down the throat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You still have to hit a weak point. You're not, you know, there's a lot of dragon you can shoot. And even if it penetrates, the scale is not going to kill it. Yeah. So let's travel up up north to Winterfell. Tyrion's message from Danny, you know, requesting Jon's presence and his his oath of fealty arrives. And Sansa, you know, for her part, vouches for Tyrion and says, you know, yeah, he's he's a Lannister, but he's a lot different than the other ones. Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. Tyrion was not terrible to Sansa at all. Jon likes Tyrion too. Yes, and Jon, to his credit, as a character that a lot of people don't necessarily think of as brilliant, is smart enough to recognize the value of dragons against White Walkers. That was... I was a little worried that he wasn't going to put two and two together there, but he he did figure it out. Yes. Uh, Less receptive to that would be the lords and ladies of the North. John gathers his, his liege lords and ladies again, and despite the little tiff that he and Sansa had last week that you know, I felt was a little embarrassing for them both in, in that meeting room. They didn't plan ahead for this conversation either. And John just dives right in saying that he plans to sail for Dragonstone. And that he appoints Sansa uh, to run the North. Yes. Without warning her at all. Surprise, you're in charge now. Um, but not before they kind of show their divisions in front of all of their subordinates, which just just bad form. Yeah, got to do that again first. Um, and <laughs> and John John raises the point to these people that she's got dragons, and that could be really helpful. I mean, the, he knows they have the dragon glass, and everyone seems pretty accepting of that, and they all seem to recognize how valuable that is. When he mentions dragons, however, he he gets some some sort of uh, skeptical looks, some some outright, you know, come on, we don't believe you on that. Which I I'm not sure how that's possible. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make a whole bunch of sense at all. Like, when, when the first reports trickled in from Essos that there were baby dragons, I can see everyone in the Westeros being like, you know, sure, it's probably a trick that someone's pulling, you know, something cute like that. These are three full-grown dragons now that we've seen engage in Navy. I, You know, Jorah was able to make it back to Westeros. I'm sure that someone would have reported something about live dragons setting fire to a Navy. They're like school bus size flying murder <laughs> reptiles um, <laughs> people presumptively know about them right. i don't know <laughs> so so john john stays the course and uh, apparently appeases everyone who was concerned about his absence by putting sansa in charge i think it's a good choice on his part i'm a little surprised that everyone is as receptive as they are yeah, I'm sur- I was surprised that was so effective at appeasing everybody. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe maybe, maybe Lyanna has just shamed all of the other lords so much to this point that when they, they hear about another woman being in charge, they're all like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I was really, I was like, oh, that was a good call on your part to put Sansa in charge, John, but I expected some more pushback. Be like, okay, that's good and all, but like that does not address any of our concerns. Right, yeah, we, we still want the king of the north to be in the north and yeah. things like that. <laughs> like we appreciate that you're not leaving us leaderless and without direction kind of assumed that um <laughs> still have some objections to the plan 
Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really eliminate the possibility of of him being killed going south, which has happened to a lot of a lot of leaders of Winterfell at this point. Yes. Anyway, maybe they did. Maybe they just assumed that he was going to go power vacuum on him while he was gone and <laughs> say, "Hey, just keep my chair warm. Nobody, uh, nobody run things. Just just do as you would like." In the meantime. <laughs> So, so John then goes down. Uh, you know, he's declared his intent. He's going to ride for White Harbor, follow in the in the hoof prints of Melisandre's horse, and go to White Harbor, sail down to to Dragonstone, and present himself to Danny. Before leaving, he goes down to the the crypt of Winterfell and visits Ned's tomb. And while he's down there, Littlefinger, fresh off a creepy grin they shot Sansa in the Great Hall, creeps his way up behind John. And just sort of barges in on his nice little moment. The creepiness just kind of goes up from there. Yeah, I don't know what that scene was all about. I don't know what you think you're doing by like, like that was a 40 year old that approached a 20 year old. And like, this is the show aging them up from the books. Yes. It was a 40 year old that approached a 20 year old being like, hey, I'm sorry that we've had our differences in the past. In my defense, I want to sleep with your 17 year old sister. (laughs) And by the way, part of the reason I want to sleep with your 17-year-old sister is because of how much I loved your stepmother. Dead mom. Your dead stepmom. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm not sure. And then, like, was he looking for a thank you for the for the Battle of the Bastards? Was that his whole goal? Was like, I mean, hey, man, recognize me, all right? I helped you yeah, out. Yeah, like, you'd be dead without me, so, so let me get at that sister. <laughs> I think it was the showrunners trying to remind us, like, Littlefinger's past, you know? I th- And I think that it actually is building up to Sansa killing Littlefinger, because they're, they're showing, they're reminding us of that past. I would be surprised if they remind us of Littlefinger's role in, Nest, in Ned's de- death soon. If they, if and when they remind us of Littlefinger's role in Ned's death, be ready for Sansa to kill Littlefinger within one to three episodes. Yeah, I agree with that, especially given... That Littlefinger just plainly lied to John about it. Yeah, saying that he liked his dad and that he didn't want him to die. Um, and and yeah, so I, as I'm as I'm sort of remembering the scene, I I don't think anything he said had a prayer of working on any rational human being. I mean, <laughs> he also described his love for Catelyn as something that he and John's executed father shared. Yeah, that's weird. Be like, uh, thanks, guy. Like your father, I also wanted to sleep with your mother. <laughs> it's an interest. It's an interesting argument. Maybe maybe Littlefinger's losing his edge a little bit being in the north for so long. <laughs> yeah, um, that that's a weird argument. If yep. someone made that to me, it really is. Like, thanks. Okay, so yeah, that's that's pretty much all of Winterfell. Uh, a little further south in the Riverlands, we we got a Nymeria sighting. Which was exciting just because it was nice to see another direwolf, especially since Ghost is apparently just, you know, not not around anymore. He's not on the CGI budget right now. Yep. He'll come back when he's necessary. So Arya's setting up camp by herself, just her and her horse, and a pack of wolves shows up. And, you know, it's looking it's looking pretty grim until Nymeria arrives. And It wasn't looking pretty grim. It was looking like Nymeria was about to arrive right <laughs> until Nymeria arrived. Come on. <laughs> least well hits that was the least well hit scene that's ever happened yeah that's that's fair and it, it was <laughs> exciting to see nymeria nymeria you know opts to stay with the pack of wolves that she's pretty much running in the riverlands at this point 
which is kind of understandable. And they did a nice nod to Arya talking to her dad earlier in the show. You know, Nymeria is not really a follower. Yeah, that is true. But I will say, you know, I expect, and we just we discussed this in the next one to four episodes. I set the over under at two and a half. Arya is going to be in a precarious situation in the Riverlands. And it's going to look like something bad's going to happen, and then Nymeria's going to enter. Actually, as I'm saying it, I set the over-under at one and a half. Yeah, especially with only seven episodes this season. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking of. Like, that's what's get, like they, they're not going to reintroduce Nymeria and then her not show up. Like, Arya and her clearly get reunited. is clearly going to murder someone. I agree death. with that. I actually, I think that, I mean, you're right. I don't think they would bother reintroducing her if they didn't plan on having her in the show again. Yeah, considering how far they go out of their way to keep dragons and uh, direwolves on the screen due to their CGI budget, it'd be really surprising if they did that scene Definitely. just for the fun of it. And, and the only other thing that really stood out to me from Arya's segments of the episode is that she somehow didn't know that Jon was now the king in the north uh, until Hot Pie told her. That doesn't seem so like, she, right. So she spent enough time possible. at the twins to kill Lord Frey kill the rest of the phrase we'll summon all the phrase back that's actually the key part because that would let's assume best case scenario we're talking a couple weeks there right yeah to absolutely back. then traveled further south and that's me being super met some generous. lannister soldiers who were talking about the havoc at the fray at the twins and during this time no one mentioned that there was a new king in the north that is what we are being asked to believe yes good also, the news of a thousand ships didn't travel around. Right. Westeros. Yeah, news is very selective in, in who, who hears about what. Yeah, I don't know which one's harder to stomach. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that's, that's what happens there. Arya learns about Jon being King of the North, and that's what sets her on the path where she runs into Nymeria, is that she has changed her mind. She's turned away from King's Landing and is headed towards Winterfell. Obviously, they don't like us to have nice things, so this is... In the same moment as John is leaving Winterfell, uh, also ahead of Bran Stark, who we saw last episode at the Wall, so no reunions for John for a while at least. That one's hard to stomach. Yes, it is a bit. That one's really hard. Yep, to so stomach. they're going to draw that out some more, and John shouldn't have anybody know about his heritage still for at least a little while. Um, so the last place we'll stop is the Citadel, where Sam is still in training, and it's just kind of gross. Uh, he's helping Jorah out. And just by flaying, just him. gonna go ahead and peel off all that skin that's got grayscale on it, which it looks extremely painful, looks extremely gross. We're not sure if it's going to be successful or yeah, not. Is not how Shireen was cured, for the record. And yeah, we don't really know if it's going to work or not, right? I mean, obviously we think it is because I don't think they would bother showing this if it wasn't going to be effective. Yeah, I've become concerned that Sam's going to get grayscale. That would be. A huge groin punch. Because I, as we said in the preview episode, and I think in last episode, grayscale matters. Um, I'm pretty convinced that grayscale matters in some way, just because it, it keeps popping up in similar locations in both the book and the show. Um, and I, I don't think that Jorah matters. So I, I'm worried that maybe the reason grayscale matters is because Sam gets it at the same uh. And when you think about the character in the book that has grayscale um, mm-hmm. and where he is him getting to the citadel to get a treatment would not be like it's not hard to foresee that yeah, scenario happening. that would be a huge bummer yeah so that's good um yeah let's go ahead and you know just take a look around the continent and 
look forward a little bit, you know, in light of what we learned in this episode, just to sort of reassess where things stand. Because as we discussed before, it seemed like it was going to be a pretty easy road for Danny when she first arrived at Dragonstone. It still should she be. have, you know, done the least amount of intelligence gathering whatsoever? She could have set fire to Euron's fleet while it was still docked and moved on to executing the exact same plan she's executing now. Uh, she didn't. And blockaded. Yep. At, least, at least some portion of her fleet is now destroyed. She's lost. I'm doing air quotes because I don't know if not having the sand snakes on your side actually hurts you in any way. It might be beneficial. It doesn't seem to. <laughs> so maybe she just, you know, gained a little more peace and quiet. But otherwise, you know, we know that she's got a fleet of Unsullied headed towards Castle Rock. And in the next week on, it looks like they will get there. Should she take Castle Rock, then, which you would think that she could, because Cersei has always kept the Lannister army pretty close to King's Landing, which would leave very little there in the way of defenses. She would then control the Westerlands and... Essentially, she would just have King's Landing and Euron's fleet to to deal with at that point, right? That's correct. I can't think who else would oppose her, assuming that assuming that John and her don't go to war. At this right? Point, yeah, they, they could draw draw that out also, and and I think that something like taking Casterly Rock would also severely impair her efforts to recruit more houses to her side, just because they would say, you know, you can't even protect your homeland. Yeah, I think the fall of Casterly Rock, it would also provoke Cersei. I think that the fall of Casterly Rock would, which I do think is going to happen. Um, I think that it would start to kind of expedite the fall of House Yes, Lannister. I agree. So the only other question I want to you know sort of resolve as far as going forward goes is, John's arriving in Dragonstone soon. Probably next episode. Do you think that the, the battle at the end of this episode has any impact on the way that they negotiate? Or is are we expecting it to be pretty straightforward where John says, you know, look, I'll be happy to swear allegiance to you if you swear to help us out with fighting the zombie menace that's coming from beyond the wall? As I said, I, yeah, I expect the speech being like, the North won't respect you unless you defend the North. Take care of your stuff, then give me your dragons. And if you defend the north, then the north. Okay. Will bend the name. That's that's what I'm expecting too. It seems pretty simple. Um, again, maybe they'll throw a wrench in there just to draw things out longer. Oh, they'll they'll draw things <laughs> out through the whole episode, but I don't I don't think they can possibly draw that one out. Okay, two I, I hope you're correct about that. Otherwise, I mean, let's just let's just you know look forward to next Sunday and try to guess which character will be killed off by a sneak attack. You're on fleet. Let's hope that we're done with that. I think that we've given the showrunners enough rope on the whole needing two fleets in play thing. They've done the things they need to do. Hopefully the rules of physics apply going forward. Ugh. All right, buddy. Well, I'm excited for next week, despite despite the complaints. <laughs> like I said, I still I, I enjoyed the episode yeah. up until I started sort of having logical disconnects towards the end of it. But I'm excited to watch again next week, and I'm excited to jump on the pod with you to break down what we see. Yeah, I mean, as much as we complain about this, I'm definitely going to be watching at 9 p.m. next week and eager and complaining the whole time. All right, buddy. Thanks for jumping on, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Have a good one, man.